Talking Real Estate with Maples Teasdale, the law firm where real estate really matters. Hello and welcome to Talking Real Estate with Maples Teasdale. I'm Fiona Larkham and I'm the team's professional support lawyer. I'm joined today by Robin Barnes, who is an associate in our planning team, and we're going to be talking about how planning is going green. Hi, Robin. Hi, Fiona. Well, Robin, I must say I was slightly shocked to see when I looked back that our last podcast on biodiversity was 18 months ago, so time really does fly. During that period, it feels to me as though attitudes to green initiatives have really shifted. Would you agree? Yes, it really does seem that the property industry as a whole is getting greener, whether it's your green leases or developers striving for better BREAM ratings or firms just keen to flex their ESG credentials. Even for those initially reluctant to embrace green initiatives, these can no longer be regarded as an optional extra. And it seems that people are increasingly wanting to work for companies that are bringing a net positive on this front. But it doesn't seem to have been a particularly smooth ride in planning, though. No, indeed. There was a feeling that we were we were going the wrong direction up until last October when we had our most recent change of Prime Minister. Under Liz Truss, we saw a souring of relations between groups such as the RSPB, the Wildlife Trusts and the National Trust. Fracking also came back onto the agenda. There were attempts to ban solar generation from farmland and there was also other attempts to weaken environmental protections as well. So understandably, many environmental groups must have been relieved to see a different approach with Rishi Sunak at the wheel. Yes, I think that's certainly the prevailing feeling. However, more generally, I think the jury is still out on how committed this government is to the green agenda. So far, policy under Rishi seems to be sticking closely to the 2019 manifesto, but it remains to be seen whether we will see less environmentally friendly concepts, such as fracking, creep back into the conversation at some point. But yeah, in general, as a result of all this political turmoil in the last few months, it's also been a turbulent time in planning as a whole. So it really feels like a good moment to take stock and explore what's happening and the changes that we should be looking out for. So let's start with biodiversity net gain. Yes, so the Environment Act 2021 has now brought the concept of biodiversity net gain into the statute books, and it will become mandatory in planning conditions from November 2023. So we have five and a half months to get ready for this. One would be forgiven for not remembering the bill's contents, as the government has been examining the idea of biodiversity net gain for a few years, following consultation way back in 2018. As a result, it already features in the National Planning Policy Framework, or NPPF, and some local authorities have already begun including requirements in their local plans last year. And just as a recap, the concept here is to improve biodiversity by including an ongoing condition in a planning approval, with the local planning authority requiring a measurable net gain in biodiversity after the development compared with the situation before it. Yes, this net gain would have to exceed that of the undeveloped site by 10%, according to a a rather complicated metric developed by DEFRA. This gain would then have to be secured for the next 30 years by way of planning condition in the planning permission, although it's thought in many cases this calculation will be pretty complex and will need to be secured by way of a Section 106 agreement instead. Recently, um, on the 2nd of May, DEFRA published what it promises will be its final guidance before launch, which clarifies what can count towards a development's biodiversity net gain in more niche situations, such as where land is being restocked, where one has a a tree felling license, for example. But essentially, 
we're on our own now. So what will developers have to do, practically speaking? Developers will be required to submit proposals on how the net gain will be achieved as part of their planning application. They will then be required to meet the thresholds set out in the conditions in the plan commission. At least for now, this won't apply for everything, household applications, change of use and developments impacting habitat area below a minimum threshold will be exempt from biodiversity net gain. And I understand that some developers are a little concerned because it's going to be much easier to achieve the 10% on some sites than on others. Yes, it appears that sites that start off with a low biodiversity classification can be more easily brought up to the required level of improvement. Developers will need to be wary about buying sites with a high biodiversity classification as improving those by the requisite 10% would appear to be more difficult and more expensive. Additionally, another element for developers to watch out for is that local planning authorities are instructed to establish a hierarchy of developments where there is more than one scheme put forward for a particular site or in a particular area and then prioritise those schemes which do not harm biodiversity. Where it's impossible to achieve the 10% net gain, a developer will have to purchase credits that the local planning authority can then use to ensure that that net gain is realised elsewhere. That seems a little bit like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, although there is no benchmark set out in the legislation when it comes to the cost, these credits are intended to be rather expensive to encourage developers to provide the physical biodiversity gain rather than circumvent the requirements by by buying the credits. The reality is that it will often be difficult for most city centre developments to achieve that 10% uplift without purchasing credits to offset the fact that they can really only provide a negligible, if any, uplift. There is now a developing market for these credits, which provides an interesting and much welcome new source of revenue for landowners and farmers who can be paid for rewilding their land. As was well publicised following Jeremy Clarkson's struggles to turn a profit in his television series, since Brexit, reduced subsidies have left farmers struggling to find a profitable use for their land. And of course, the planning system found itself very much the subject of Jeremy's ire. I will confess I didn't actually see that series, but I would imagine it really got the message out to a wider audience. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair enough. Anyway, this scheme of selling credits wouldn't be without risk to the farmer or landowner. Take the example of introducing new flora and fauna. New habitat may fail or it might be sensitive to predators or climate change. And if a landowner has covenanted to provide the uplift on the developer's behalf, any replacement cost is then going to fall on the landowner. So where would a developer actually go to buy credits? Is there an established marketplace? And more importantly, how much are they going to cost? Well, to facilitate this market, the government has come up with the idea of local nature recovery strategies, which landowners can sign up their land to. This will be particularly attractive for land which is otherwise not developable. There is by no means a surplus of credits for sale at present, and only a handful of registered providers. So currently prices are very high. From what I've seen, credits are priced anywhere between £10,000 to £30,000 per unit sold, which translates to one tonne of carbon per credit. However, the number of providers is expanding, which you'd imagine in time would push down the price. An interesting side point on this is that increasingly, we are seeing businesses looking beyond their net zero obligations towards becoming nature positive. This may mean that we see companies voluntarily deciding to purchase biodiversity credits, even when they're not actually developers themselves. 
it sounds as though that could have an interesting impact on the market. Can we just go back to the requirement for the gain to last for 30 years? How is that going to work where developers sell and move on? This is going to be achieved by the use of conservation covenants, which are made to ensure that the promised gain is realised. Conservation covenants have been introduced by Part 7 of the Environment Bill with the aim of facilitating the biodiversity net gain. These covenants would move us to a a more regimented system for legally binding private agreements between the conservation body and the landowner. These positive covenants will run with the title and therefore bind any future purchasers of the property. Any purchaser will be aware of their continuing obligations and agreeing to how land shall be managed with the benefit being held by the conservation body, whether that be the local authority, a charity, wildlife trust, etc. If the landowner fails to comply with the covenant, then the court can order injunctions, damages or particular action to be taken. Okay, well, thanks for explaining that. I suspect it's going to take a while for the property market to get used to long-term biodiversity obligations. So I think we have some interesting times ahead there. Can we just change tack now? Can we move on to where we are with the levelling up and regeneration bill? I understand that it's undergoing some amendments at the present. Yes, and these have been pretty badly received in general by the industry. These amendments have come about due to a recent rebellion by Conservative MPs against mandatory house building targets. And of course, this goes against a core pledge in the Conservative Manifesto of 2019, which you'll recall promised that 300,000 homes a year by the mid-2020s. This target was at the core of the National Planning Policy Framework. But in order to placate angry MPs and their constituents, Michael Gove has had to concede various amendments to the bill. The main takeaways are that housing need assessments are to be an advisory starting point, which can be overlooked if deemed to be out of keeping with particular characteristics of an authority. Elsewhere, local plans need not accommodate objective housing need if there is clear evidence of past over-delivery, or doing so would mean building at density significantly out of character with an existing area. Greenbelt boundaries were described as absolute red lines not to be reviewed or altered for any purpose. This has understandably frustrated many commentators who feel that there are many areas of Greenbelt which are not rolling countryside, which would be well suited to meeting the housing shortage. Elsewhere, more emphasis is being put on the production of local design guides and the importance of beauty in planning decisions, which is tricky as it's famously a subjective thing, being in the eye of the beholder and all. These amendments have been dressed up as green because they preserve the green belt and will result in less pressure to build houses. When really they represent a watering down of the National Planning Policy Framework and its role in delivering housing? Yes, these provisions somewhat undermine the presumption in favour of sustainable development. Whilst this looks like an effort to placate certain groups of voters, it won't do the government any favour amongst younger generations who are keen for the government to tackle the housing crisis, encourage growth of the housing stock and make housing more affordable. It should be noted that the average deposit for a London home has just passed the 125k mark. Mm, Well, it seems like the government's in a pretty difficult position here. Yeah, within government, you've got those who want to stick with the status quo in conflict with those who want to cut red tape and encourage development and economic growth first. It looks like the status quo is winning out currently, but it's not clear that that will secure the next election. Well, that's definitely one to be continued. Meanwhile, what about case law updates? 
Well, as usual, there's a few interesting bits and pieces of case law. However, there's only really one show in town when it comes to green issues, and that's the decision on uh, Marks and Spencer's proposals to demolish and rebuild its flagship Art Deco Marble Arch store. Are we nearly there with this one? I recall the decision being called in by the Secretary of State for Environmental Review last summer. Yes, the intention was that a decision would not be made until after the recent local elections. And now that these are out of the way, we can expect a decision on this case imminently. And why has this particular application got so many eyes on it? Well, the inquiry is regarded as something as a litmus test for how seriously local planning authorities are taking environmental factors into their decision making, specifically when it comes to the release of embodied carbon. 50% of global carbon emissions are embodied in our buildings and demolition of the Marble Arch Store released 40,000 tonnes of the stuff. So all this carbon has really fuelled the retrofit or rebuild debate? Yes, and it's especially tricky where a new scheme is stated to provide better sustainability credentials in the long run. Everyone appears to be weighing in on the fight. We've had Bill Bryson, Kevin MacLeod, Kristen Scott-Thomas and Griff Rees-Jones all arguing that retrofit should be the only option here. The inquiry is receiving concerned glances from developers and local authorities alike. It raises a host of questions. To what degree is the climate crisis now a planning issue? To what extent should an applicant be forced to consider retrofitting first? What about if a developer just comes up with a scheme that makes that retrofit impossible? And how can we justify or trust the developer's calculations? So what are M&S saying? Well, M&S claim that the current site is a warren of misaligned flaws and not fit for today's modern customers or staff. They therefore argue that the core is unsuitable for retrofitting. Instead, M&S have come forward with a scheme they boast would be among the top 1% in London on sustainable performance. They claim that payback on the carbon investment should be 11 years with a building with a lifespan of more than 100 years. They also argued that redevelopment is key to reversing the decline of Oxford Street and that they would leave the property if they didn't get their consent. That sounds like a pretty bullish approach. Yes, there's a a prevailing sense of disappointment that one of the UK's favourite retailers, whom last year pledged to become fully net zero by 2040, would make such an ultimatum. The Guardian's Simon Jenkins labelled the stance as blackmail and laments that the scheme is at odds with the UK's net zero target at a time of rapidly rising public anxiety about the climate crisis. But if we try to be objective about it, the scheme does sound pretty promising in terms of its environmental credentials. Yes, I'd agree. On paper, it certainly does. However, getting to the core of whether this is accurate is the difficult thing. Will Ng of the Architects Journal recently wrote that the major issue with embodied carbon calculations in planning applications is that very few people are actually qualified to understand them. As a result, data can be spun to spuriously justify demolition over refurbishment, when in the vast majority of cases, refurbishment is the more carbon efficient option. Henrietta Billings, director of Save Britain's Heritage, notes that it's impossible for a planning officer to interpret and interrogate the figures presented to them by a well-funded applicant. And this is precisely what Save argued at the inquiry, outlining the 11-year carbon payback promised by Marks and Spencers is totally misleading. They've already started taking legal action against each other regarding statements in the press releases about this. So understandably, the planning world continues to watch this application with interest if not for how it will impact on future planning decisions, then at least just for the drama. 
Well, thanks, Robin. You've certainly given us lots to think about. And I hope that you and I can get back together again before another 18 months flashes past so you can um, bring us up to date on developments. Brilliant. Thanks, Fiona. Thanks for listening to Talking Real Estate with Maples Teasdale. I hope you can join us again next time. Talking Real Estate with Maples Teasdale, the law firm where real estate really matters.